Today's reading is from Philippians chapter 3, verse 1 through 11. Finally, my brothers, rejoice in the Lord. To write the same things to you is no trouble to me and is safe for you. Look out for the dogs. Look out for the evildoers. Look out for those who mutilate the flesh. For we are the circumcision who worship by the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh, though I myself have reason for confidence in the flesh also. If anyone else thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law, a Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to righteousness under the law, blameless. But whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and may share his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, that by any means possible, I may attain the resurrection from the dead. This is the word of the Lord. So if you're just joining us this summer, we're working our way through the book of Philippians. Um, I'm really excited to be in chapter 3, finally. I feel like chapter 1 was like the hors d'oeuvres. Chapter 2 felt like the salad course. And chapter 3, we're into the, like, ah, red meat. And, or if you're not into red meat, you're into the, the portobello mushrooms of um, <laughs> Philippians. And this is where it really gets good. You know, we've been talking about joy this summer. This, Philippians is the book about joy. Uh, it's, it's a book, if you look through... You go through your um, scripture, and this is what I did a couple weeks ago, and just circle all the words that say joy, rejoice, enjoy, all those things. This is the book, this is the letter that is about joy in the New Testament. And I find that, you know, we're people who come together on Sundays and we sing about joy, we talk about joy, we confess our sins, we talk about rejoicing, and yet I would say that many of us really struggle, really struggle with joy. Have a need for joy. You know, how many of you have sort of had the like, what's wrong with me conversation with yourself? You know, uh, I'm, I'm here, I'm doing all the stuff, showing up, and yet there's something wrong, something missing in my life. Yeah, I look around at other people, they seem to be happy, they seem to be rejoicing, they seem to be Something that kind of clicks, but not me. I mean, let's be honest. I mean, how many of us have wrestled deeply with a sense of the like, there's something got to be seriously wrong with me? And I, this passage that we read this morning is all about Paul's own journey in struggling to answer that question. What's wrong with me? So we read in verse 1 of chapter 3, he says this, Finally, my brothers, rejoice in the Lord to write the same things to you is no trouble for me and is safe to you. And he's about to set up, and what we're going to look at today is this contrast. Paul's going to say, here's the way I used to look for joy. This is the way I used to, to, to strive for joy. This is how I 
you know, when I was dealing with the what's wrong with me question, and here's where I found it. And I want you to, to find what I found. It's a, it's, this isn't just his, like, instruction. This is his testimony. This is what Paul says. This is what happened to me. And um, for you to get this this morning, I need you to think of the TV show The Apprentice. So The Apprentice, um, for those of you who have not been hiding in a cave for the last seven years, one of the worst reality TV shows that there is on TV, um, it's, so Donald Trump uh, has this show, you know, where he, he gets, people want to become, want to work for this guy. They want to become in management in one of his many industries. And so they show up on the show and they compete to be his apprentice. And you know, the, the show is every week they sort of, uh, he, he, he has the you're fired tagline and somebody is both fired and also sent home from the show. Um, and whether or not you've seen that show, you can relate to this whether you look for a job in the last couple of years. Because like in the show The Apprentice, like in the real world looking for a job, you need three things. The apprentices need three things to basically be, to, to get ahead, to get the role. What do they need? They need a killer resume. You need connections. And you need that drive, that ambition. That's what... That's what People need in this economy to get ahead, right? You need a killer resume, you need the connections to, to get the right job, and you need ambition. And that's, that's actually what we see Paul describe in this passage when he talks about himself. These are the things I had. Look, look with me briefly at this. He says here, I had the right connections. Paul sets it up here and says, look, I had all the right connections. And, you know, if you, if you know anything about getting a job in Philly, connections are everything. It used to be said about the three big northeastern cities, Boston, New York, and Philly. It used to be said this. New Yorkers ask you, what do you do? People from Boston ask you, who's your family? But people from Philly ask you, who do you know? Who are you connected with? Connections are all important for moving ahead. And Paul here says, I had the perfect connections. He says here, look, I was circumcised on the eighth day. In other words, he wasn't a convert to Judaism. He was born a Jew. He says, I'm from the tribe of Benjamin. This is the one of the two tribes that didn't abandon the kingship of David. And he says, I was a Hebrew of Hebrews. You know, in, in Paul's day, there were two types of people who were Jewish. There were the real Jews, the Hebrew of Hebrews, and there were the Hellenistic Jews, people who had sort of acculturated themselves to the Greek culture around them. And they were viewed as sellouts. Paul's like, I was no sellout. Like, I had the connections. And then he says, look, I have a killer, I have a killer resume. Now, you, know, you guys all know what a resume is. A lot of times we think of a resume as a statement of what you've done, you know, your history. This is your, your education, your background, where you've worked. But in reality, a resume is not a list. It's an argument. Right? I heard someone say this recently, that your resume is an argument. There's a door that's closed to you, and your resume says, here's why that door should be open to me. Here's why I'm the ideal person for this job. Here's why I need to get in here. And Paul says, look, look at my resume. Look at my resume. He says, as to the law, I was a Pharisee. The Pharisees were a first century Jewish sect who were so serious about obeying God's law that they actually developed a whole system of sub-laws to kind of hold themselves in check and to make sure that they were absolutely obeying the law. They're like, if we can obey all these other things, we'll make sure we're obeying the main one. Pharisee of Pharisees. He said this, as to righteousness under the law, I was blameless. It's a powerful statement. He says, morally perfect. You can't find any dirt on me. 
so Paul says, look, I have a killer resume. I had, I had the, the connections. And then finally he says, I had the drive. Look what he says in, again here in verse 6. As to zeal, I was a persecutor of the church. The guy has got it together. He's saying, look, these are all the things that I had in place. And yet, and yet, are they enough? Now, this is the way our world operates, right? We still operate with the resume, the connections, and the drive. This isn't just true for uh, finding a job. This is true for dating, okay? Dating 101. If If you're going to date someone, you have to sort of put forth a resume. You don't put forward your worst qualities, right? You make sure that person sees you at your best. When I was um, asking out the woman who is now my wife, uh, I was kind of, I wore ripped jeans and, and, uh, and work boots and solid color shirts. And so when I wanted to ask her out, when I went on a di- first date with her, I borrowed friends uh, khaki pants, pleated khakis, it was that day, a braided belt, a paisley shirt, and docksiders. My friends were like, who is this? All right, I'm like putting forth my resume. Hey, this is what you like, right? I know how to do that, right? So to date, you need that. You need ambition. You can't just wait for this to happen, right? You need connections, your friends to say, hey, would you set us up? Can you, can you introduce me? This is how the world works. And many of us actually come from a background or naturally come to God and say, that's how God works too. You know, I come to God with my resume. Here's the reasons why I'm a good person. I come to him with some ambition and some drive. I come to him with the connections. I'm part of this church thing. This is how people naturally think that Christianity works, that relating to God works. But Paul says here, not so. Look what he says in verse 7 and 8. Whatever gain I had, whatever gain I had in the past, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I've counted everything as a loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish. That word rubbish there is actually a nice kind of PG version of this passage. The, the, the Greek to this passage um, we, reads something more like a steaming pile. It's a not a nice word to describe a not a nice thing. All right? I mean, the King James Version translates this a little bit better as dung. Whatever I counted as the past, as my gain, I now count as dung. You know, in setting this up, he's saying, look, everything I had before, everything I was striving for, the way that I approached God, the way I thought that life worked, you know, resume, ambition, having the right connections, these things are rubbish compared to what I've found. I've found something of such surpassing value. And I, I want to look today, we're going to look at each of these three things in turn. Paul says, look, I, I, I had an old killer resume, I found a new killer resume. I had an old ambition, I have a new ambition. I had old power connections, now I have the right power connection. I want to look at these with you briefly. Look, look what he says here in verse 9. God provides a new killer resume. Whatever I had before is loss. I can, I can consider it rubbish compared to the surpassing greatness. And he talks here about his about finding a righteousness that comes from God. Not having a righteousness of my own, but a righteousness that comes from God. And here, here's the main idea. Everyone, in terms of presenting a resume, in, in, in terms of relating to other people, is putting forth, is striving for, is longing for righteousness. 
It's a biblical word just that simply means I'm okay and other people see that I'm okay. I'm okay. You know, righteousness is our most fundamental need and our greatest problem. All people are working for it. So, you know, you go to work, you want to get ahead with your job, you want to present a righteous record to your boss. You want your boss to approve of you and say, you're doing a great job, you're moving up. You know, in, in, um, uh, in, in other relationships, we're looking to move ahead by presenting a record of righteousness. Just this past uh, month, I got a citation from the city of Philadelphia for having trash, uh, having recycling in my trash. And I was furious about this. I'm, I'm so angry about this. I'm like, don't you know who I am? I am the recycling guy on my block. I'm the guy who cleans up the alleyway behind the house. I'm the guy who cleans up the trash on the side. How dare you? Don't you know who I am? What am I demanding? What was I so angry about? You know, I was like, I have some righteousness here. City of Philadelphia, you should recognize this. You know, think about this. For those of you who are in her husbands or wives, would you, which would you rather be? This is a sermon illustration I get from, from a guy named Josiah Bancroft. Which would you rather be? Would you rather be right in a, in a conflict? Or would you rather be forgiven in a conflict with your spouse? Would you rather be right or forgiven? Most of us would rather be right. I mean, forgiven's nice. But right, that's what we really want. Yeah, I want to be right. I want to be seen as right. I want to be the one who's right. We're all looking for it, working for it. Righteousness is our greatest need. And yet, you know, human-produced righteousness, it doesn't gain anything. It doesn't gain anything with God. It's like taking Monopoly money. If you took, you're playing Monopoly with your friends one night, and you take the, like, red and green and yellow bills, and you go to the grocery store the next day, and you try to pay with groceries for those, you know, the, the grocery's like, you're crazy. You know, human-produced righteousness is the same thing in the economy of God. Putting our, pulling ourselves together. A righteous record is like pay, playing, paying for groceries with Monopoly money. It doesn't count for anything. And striving for righteousness robs us for joy. It robs us of joy. You know, as a person who's like, I'm trying to hold this together. I'm trying to like get my life together. It's exhausting. When Susan and I were in college, um, we were always looking for different kind of like interesting date opportunities, and we lived outside Charlotte, North Carolina, and um, there's a lot to do in Charlotte, but we decided to do something local one night, and we went to a rodeo. It's my only rodeo experience ever, but it was fascinating, uh, and, and I loved the part, like, so they had uh, bull riding, you guys have seen some of that, or bill racing, where they race the horses, but my favorite was uh, calf roping. So uh, here's the men's event. The, the guys are on the horse, and they let a calf go, and they, they ride out real fast. They rope the calf. They get it on the ground, and they tie up its legs, and they time the thing, see how fast they can do it. Um, so the men's event was interesting, but then the women's event was on the same thing was awesome because what they did for the women's event is instead of releasing a calf, they, did, they used a goat, and they had this poor goat tethered to a chain in the middle of the thing. So the women would ride out really fast, jump off their horse, go over and grab the goat, throw it on the ground, tie up its legs. Well, after about three of these things, the goat starts getting wise to this whole deal. Like, uh-uh, you are not throwing me down on the ground again. And so 
every time the women's times got slower and slower and slower. And, you know, I think it's such a great picture for us of trying to pull together righteousness. Because you find as, as a person, you know, the more that you're like, I've got to pull it together, you find that there's something even within yourself, even within your own flesh, that seems to resist that more and more. That producing human righteousness, trying trying to get yourself together before God, it's exhausting. It doesn't work. And this is where Paul says, you know, look, God comes and God gives me a new killer resume. God comes and the thing that I've been striving for, righteousness, God provides in the person of Jesus. So, Paul talks about this, and he has this great phrase, being found in him. Being found in him. Here's here's the righteousness that he discovers. He says, look, Jesus Christ, he lived the life I should have lived. He lived the life of moral perfection. He died as a substitute in my place. And therefore, what was his, his perfect record, his perfect righteousness, where God said, Jesus, you're okay, is transferred to me. So that when God looks upon me, he sees Jesus' perfection. This is the righteousness that theologians have called alien righteousness. It's not part of you. It's outside of you, and yet God credits it to you. And there's a new resume that God gives you. Look, just as a resume argues you into somewhere else, a resume says, this is the compelling reasons. These are the compelling reasons why we need to hire this person. These are the compelling reasons why this person should be accepted into this degree program. Jesus' righteous record is the compelling resume that God reads and says, You are my son or daughter. With you, I am well pleased. Let me ask you, why is there no joy in your life? Why is it that you're fighting for joy? is it that you have failed to recognize the fullness of what God provides in Jesus Christ in giving us this resume and saying, this is yours. You know, are you exhausted? Can you look at all your gains? Hey, you know, as Nathan described this morning, you know, I thought that it was about what I do. And yet, Paul says, no, all those gains are losses. The real gain is what Christ gives me in his righteousness. How do you get found? How do you get found? You have to know first that you're lost, right? You, you don't get found in Christ unless you first deal with the fact that you are lost. And my invitation to you today, my calling to you today, is just to listen, to discover, to see that God has already done in Christ everything that was required for your acceptance. Everything that's 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 needed for your perfection and holiness and your joy in giving Christ a new killer resume. But look what's more here. We read that Paul doesn't just have a, doesn't just exchange one resume for another. He also exchanges one ambition for another. Now, if you had met the Apostle Paul, you would have said, this guy is a person who clearly is trying really hard, is really ambitious for make for God for you know it seems like a very religious person seems like a guy who's got it together and yet there's a difference between an ambition that's about proving yourself to God and ambition that's about knowing God and here's the difference uh, one 
One, 18, uh, one, one preacher from the 1800s named Charles Spurgeon tells this story. He says, once upon a time, there was a king. And the king had a, uh, a farmer in his kingdom, a very poor farmer, who comes and brings him one day a, a giant carrot. He says, king, I've grown you this giant carrot. And he presents it to the king. And the king is like, that is a beautiful carrot. Thank you for that carrot. And you know what? Because, because you've grown this for me, I want to... I, I want to let you be able to do more. Here, here, have another acre of land next to your land. Grow more carrots. And a nobleman's listening to this story, and he's like, ha-ha, I got it. So he's got a, he knows, he's got a, a barn full of horses back, back at his, uh, his estate, and he comes the next day, and he brings the horse to the king and says, King, I brought you a horse. Isn't it great? And the king's like, thank you for the horse. And the nobleman's standing there and waiting. It's like, you know, one carrot equals one extra acre. A horse better equal a lot more. And he, so he's waiting. And the king says, um, you need something? And he says, well, you know, I thought the carrot, the acre, the horse. And he says, oh, no. That farmer, see, the farmer gave me a carrot, but you gave yourself a horse. You get the point? See, Paul is the farmer. He's been the farmer in the past. He's like striving striving to sort of prove himself before God. And yet, he says there's a difference between being the farmer and being the nobleman. And this is what we see in this passage. What's his great ambition now? What's his great ambition? We read this in verse 8. Now I count everything a loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. He says, you know, I had a, I had an ambition before. Now I have a superior ambition. Before I had, I had a drive, now I have a drive that matters, that counts. Here's what I mean as I think about this. There's a difference between knowing God and knowing about God. You know, many of you are longtime Christians. You know all the right Jesus answers. You could have taught point one of this sermon by yourself. Some of you are like, I could have taught that. I know, I, I know this. Come on, come on, Jeff, let's speed it up. I know what you're going to say. But as we look at this, one question I have to ask is, you know, what about your desire? What about your passion? Do you have a passion to know Christ? To know Christ. You know, this is, in your life, what is your greatest desire? Paul says, you know, I've left my former desires, which are to get myself ahead. Now my greatest desire is to know Christ. Not personal success. Not moving myself ahead, it's knowing him. And everything else, by comparison, is rubbish in my life. Let me apply this to you for a second. This week, if you lose your job, if you lose your job this week, will you say, ah, I'm devastated because that's my first desire? Or will you say, this is good. You know, this is good. This is maybe part of God's plan to help me desire Christ more than my work. You know, when bad news comes from the doctor, are you devastated because your health is your number one? Or, is it, or do you say, yeah, you know, maybe this is God's way of helping me to love and Jesus first. He's first. It's actually close to my, this fulfills my great desire to know him more. You know, when your marriage or your dating relationship falls apart, 
Do you say, if a loss of the most significant relationship in my life is what it takes to know him more than great, great, I'm on my way to knowing Jesus. See, what, what's your drive? What's your desire? Do you have a passion for Christ? Do you have a desire him that's stronger than other desires? The 19th century theologian Charles Hodge said this way. He said, look, knowledge of God should always bring us, should always deliver us to a place of desire for God before everything else. I find a lot of Christians are stuck here because they're like, I know all the right answers. I know, you know, Jesus is my perfect righteousness. He's my resume. But why are you stuck in a place with no joy, no discernible joy, passionless? Is it because Jesus, who is worthy of all of our our life and our focus and our desire and our passion, is in a lesser role in your life, is in a second place? See, Paul's not saying, look, things don't matter. I've turned myself into Jesus' robot, you know, where I don't care about work. I don't care about relationships. I don't care about those things. Don't mishear me. But he's saying, look, if Jesus is number one, if If you're saying, my great passion is to know him, then the loss of some of those other things doesn't have the wrecking ball effect in your life that it might have before. The loss of some of those other things, you're like, no, you know, my surpassing desire is to know Jesus, is to know him, and that's a joy that's untouchable. See, why? Why is it that many of us struggle for joy? It's because professional success is number one and Jesus is number two. And professional success is a hard God to maintain in number one. See, if you've got something else besides God in the position of number one, your great desire, then you're always going to be worried. You're always stressed out. Professional success is fleeting. You know, relationships. If you're like, you know, Jesus is important to me, but relationships, that's what really I desire. So where, where I really find my hope and my joy, you're always going to be anxious. What if this person doesn't find me attractive anymore? What, what if this relationship goes south? You know, it, it, there's a sense of you're never able to rest in that. And yet if Jesus is number one, then there's a sense of peace within our hearts. You know, our God, it tells us in Scripture, is a jealous God. That's a troubling statement to many people. Our God's a jealous God. Is God so petty? Does he have to be the center of attention all the time? You know, God is a jealous God because God is the only thing in this universe that's worthy of centering your life around, and he knows it. God is, God is a jealous God because he's saying, I want your freedom and your joy, and that's only found when I am first in your life. You know, God desires our freedom, not for us to live in insecurity and worry and anxiety and fear that comes from having him in number two. What about you? Where is your, where is your joy? You know, the word happiness, in our language, is a translation from a Latin word for fortune. And, you know, fortune is a dangerous thing. It comes and it goes. Circumstances change things like that. Joy is rooted in having a God who's in first place. Do you have that, people of liberty? 
Is Jesus your overriding passion? See, Paul says, I've got a new killer resume. I've got a new killer resume. Second, I've got a new surpassing ambition to know Christ. And third, he says, I've got a new connection. I've got a new connection. Remember what I said at the beginning? Paul had all the right Jewish connections. He's from the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, circumcised on the eighth day. He's like, I've had all the connections. Look what he says now. I've got a different connection. Verses 10 and 11. He talks about, he says, I want to know him and the power of his resurrection that I may share in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, that by all means possible I may attain to the resurrection of the dead. See, he says, my, my connections of the past, those things were supposed to give me entrance. Now he's got a new connection. And he's, he talks here about knowing the power of Jesus' resurrection. Knowing Jesus and the power of his resurrection. He doesn't want to just know Jesus. He doesn't want to just know about Jesus or know Jesus. He wants to resemble Jesus. This week we were talking to my six-year-old. We're sitting around the dinner table one night, Susan and I, and we're talking about, hey, what do you want to be like when you grow up? And he's like, I want to be bald. (laughs) I want to be bald. And, you know, I was like, you know, there's something right about a little kid... I hope he doesn't get bald. But, I, you know, there's something right about a little kid who wants to be like his daddy. There's something really right about a little boy who wants to be like his daddy. You know, for us, what about you? Do you want to be like your daddy? Not just know him. Not just know about God, about the, the new resume he gives you. Not just know him and desire him above all things, but resemble him. Become like him. And Paul says the connection to this, the absolute connection to this is knowing him in his resurrection power. Knowing him in his resurrection power. You know, the Bible tells us, in fact, we read this during our confession from Romans 8, that the same power that raised Jesus from the dead is at work in those of us who believe. And yet, there's a danger for us. I mean, Paul writes in 2 Timothy, he says, you know, there's a danger for people who want to have the forms of godliness, but no power in their life. See, God is a God who's, who doesn't just come to give you new relationship, but power in your life. The word power in Greek is the word dunamis, which is where we get two uh, English words that both of them you need to think about this morning. Dunamis is our root word for dynamite. The power of God in your life should blow up some things. There should be dust and rocks everywhere and some mess. It's like building a tunnel through a mountain. Something's exploding in your life. It's also the word where we get our word, the, the root for dynamic. And, you know, di- something that's dynamic means something that's changing over time. The best picture of this is this picture of water cutting through a canyon, right? Slow change, but something is changing. You know... As you look at your own life, you have to ask, what's happening? Am I the same person that I was a year ago? Is there any smoke? Is there anything blowing up in my life? Is there anything being carved out of my life? You know, I find that people early on who've come to faith in Christ, a lot of times their life looks like a lot of explosions. Big things happening. Lots of smoke. Lots of blowing up. For some of you who have been long-term Christians, it's much more like the river cutting through. Things are moving, but they're, they're, they may be moving slowly, 
but there's change. You know, are you growing as a follower of Jesus? One of the ways we connect to God's joy is by we see by seeing his power unleashed within us, his power working within us. You know, why is it that some of you are saying, yeah, you know, I can say that Jesus is my resume, and I could say I really desire him above all else, but I'm, I'm still fighting for joy. One of the reasons, one of the big reasons we need to wrestle with is what areas of your life have you declared off-limits? To God. Have you said, you know, no, God, you can't mess with that part. That's an essential part of my personality. I don't want you touching that area. That's part of who I am. If you change that, I don't, I don't even know who I'm going to be anymore. See, God is showing up with a hard hat and some detonators and a wrecking crew. And he wants to do major work in your life. One of the big joy killers in our lives is when our, our wills are so hardened to him working. You know, when we're like, God, you can touch everywhere else, but not here. C.S. Lewis wrote this. He says, imagine yourself as a living house. God wants to come and rebuild that house. At first, perhaps, you understand what he's doing. He's getting the drains right. He's stopping the leaks in the roof, so on. You knew that those jobs needed to be done. You're not surprised. But presently... He starts knocking about in a way that hurts. Doesn't seem to make sense. What's he up to? The explanation is that he is building something, a quite different house from the one you thought of. He's throwing out the walls. He's putting in an extra floor. He's running up towers. He's making courtyards. You thought you were being made into a decent cottage. He's building a palace. Liberty. Listen. This is my invitation for you. You know, come to God and beg of Him. God, help me to release myself to your wrecking crew in my life. You know, go to God and say, you know, here's this locker that I haven't wanted to open. There's a there's a there's a uh, a trunk in the attic. You know, there's a bo- couple boxes in the basement I have not wanted you to touch. God is building something glorious. He longs to build something beautiful and glorious with your life. But one of the big joy killers is shutting him down. No way, God, not in here. I want to tell you, brothers and sisters, this this picture that we see of Paul's own testimony, he's saying, look, I have found a joy. I found a a gateway to joy in my life. There's a God who sings over me. There's a big brother, Jesus, who's working powerfully in my life. And his invitation is us. Do you find the new resume, the new righteousness in him? Will you cash in some old ambitions for a new ambition? I want to know Christ above all else. And third, will you seek a connection to his power in your life? In 1992, in Morristown, Tennessee... There's a family that was expecting a baby girl. And as they, they, uh, the family got ready, you know, they did the typical things. They prepared the bedroom for the baby girl that was coming. And um, the, her, little, her older brother, Michael, was three years old at the time. And so they started talking about the baby coming. And you want to come talk to mommy's tummy, that kind of thing. And so he started 
singing this song to the baby in, in her tummy. He'd, he'd say, you are my sunshine, my only sunshine. You make me, you guys know that song. So he starts singing this song, and, and he does it every night. He wants to sing this song to the baby. Comes time for the delivery, and uh, they get halfway through the delivery, and there's some complications. And the baby doesn't do well. And they take the baby from a local community hospital to St. Mary's in Knoxville, Tennessee. And uh, she's in the neonatal ICU. And things are not looking good. The doctor tells Karen, her mother, she says, this is not going to get better. And instead of preparing to take the baby home, you need to begin to prepare funeral arrangements for the child. And Michael doesn't understand why he can't go see his sister. You know, he's, I want to sing my song, Mommy. I want to sing my song. And he, he's, he's talking to his mom over and over again, talking to his dad. And finally, when the end of about a week and a half is over, and it looks like they're to the last 24 hours, they say, what, you know, what's it going to hurt? Let's take him to the hospital. So they take Michael to the hospital. He's like, I want to sing my song to the baby. So they take him to the hospital they put him in the scrubs, the oversized adult-sized scrubs, and they take him up to the neonatal ICU. And the nurse says, you can't bring a kid on this floor. You know, this is the, the neonatal ICU. But the mother begs. She's like, look, you know, my baby's dying. He wants to sing the song. Can you please make an exception? And so they let him through, and he comes up to the incubator, and he starts singing. He starts singing, you are my sunshine. My only sunshine. And as he sings, the baby's heart rate, which had been erratic over the place, begins to steady. You make me happy when skies are gray. Nurses come over because they're watching as he keeps singing this song that there's an effect on the child. The breathing evens out. You'll never know, dear. How much I love you. Please don't take my sunshine away. The next week, Marley was released. Allowed to go home. You have an older brother, Jesus, who loves you with a love that you could never imagine. Who so longs for your joy and your healing who sings over you his song of salvation and longs for you to open your hands to the gifts he gives you, new righteousness, a new purpose for living, and his power released in your life. Your Savior loves you this way. You are his sunshine. It may sound trite, but it is true. This is the love the Heavenly Father has for you. Don't stay away. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit.